morning. I'm Melissa. Um, I'm going to read two passages from Scripture. So if you guys want to open your pew Bibles and follow along, you can. Or you can just listen up to you. I'm going to be reading from Mark 1 and then also from Jonah 3. Mark 1 and Jonah 3. The first is Mark 1, verse 14 to 20. After John had been arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God. The time has arrived. The kingdom of God is upon you. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee when he saw Simon and his brother Andrew at work with casting, wait, what? With casting nets in the lake for they were fishermen. Jesus said to them, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, mending their nets. At once he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. The next one is Jonah 3. Verses 1 to 5 and then 10. A second time the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Go to the great city of Nineveh. Go and denounce it in the words I give you. Jonah obeyed and went at once to Nineveh. It was a vast city, three days journey across. And Jonah began by going a day's journey into it. Then he proclaimed, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. The people of Nineveh took heart, took to heart the warning, this warning from God. They declared a public fast and high and low alike put on sackcloth. When God saw what they did and how they gave up their wicked ways, he relented and did not inflict on them the punishment he had threatened. This is a little hot. Can we just turn down a little bit? Let's take a moment and pray together before we reflect on these texts. So God, in this space, we listen for your word. Would you speak to each of us what we need to hear in a way that we can understand and help us to be faithful in response? Through Christ our Lord. Amen. So our lectionary texts for this Sunday in the season of Epiphany include this text of Jonah and also this text in the Gospels. So let's start by reflecting and meditating on the Jonah text. What's going on in the Jonah text? Well, Jonah is called to go speak to Nineveh, which we're told is a great city, but we also hear is a city of wickedness. Uh, this is kind of seems to be a bit of a trend in history. The greater a city 
wants to be, the more corruption that city will usually encounter. If you were to picture it like a, a big pile of like rice or something like that, and you were to try to stack it all up, try to build up your stack of rice really, I don't know why I went with rice, but just go with me on this one. Just trying to stack up your rice really high. The higher up you're trying to stack something, the more is going to roll off of it. The higher up you're trying to build something, the more will inevitably be scattered to the edge. And the higher up something goes, the further out that scattering will occur. This is just a pattern that we see. The higher the towers go in a city, the more people will be rolled off to the edge. The more money comes into a city, the further distributed will be those who do not have the means to participate in that city. And so great cities are often corrupt cities. And it's struck me in no small part this week, meditating on our city, Hamilton, and the parallels between great cities of old, including their corruption, and what we see in our own city. Both a desire to be the ambitious city, kind of our little Hamilton tagline, the ambitious city. Uh, but all of that ambition has gotten us, uh, well, not too far. We've got a couple of taller condos, yay. A whole bunch of condos mid-construction, uh, kind of looked like demolition more than construction. And increasingly, people that cannot survive in this kind of atmosphere. People pushed to the margins, those who don't have the economic means to participate in the worship that our city prioritizes, those who don't have the mental well-being or social connections or communities to hold them and cohere them in a city that is trying so quickly to build itself up but is experiencing a great deal of destruction and loss as it does so, especially among those who have fallen to the edge. Now in our text here, it makes Jonah sound like he's super responsive because it says the word of the Lord came and immediately Jonah went to bring the message. If you know the story of Jonah, you know that we came in about halfway through. The first thing that happens when the word of the Lord comes to Jonah is he does what any of us do when the word of the Lord comes we run the opposite way. That's just how we do it, right? You hear from God, go do this, say this, be this, and you go, ah, I'm going to run far from that, as quick as I can away from that. Classic. So Jonah runs the opposite way. He's on a boat, and a storm comes, and Jonah recognizes right away, oh, this is God trying to get my attention. And who can't relate to a storm in your life that if you spend a bit of time meditating on, you go, ooh, this is actually someone trying to get my attention. And so Jonah is thrown by the people on the boat into the sea, and he's swallowed up by a fish where he lives inside the gut of this fish for three days. Again, super relatable. <laughs> Who hasn't been there? It's three rough days in the belly of a beast before ugh, vomited up onto the shore. And there on the shore, covered in fish gut, the word comes to Jonah, and he marches right away, speaks it. Now, there's good reasons why Jonah wouldn't want to necessarily speak good news to this nation, Nineveh, under the Assyrian Empire, the enemies of the Jewish people. At some point in the story of Israel, uh, Nineveh will be responsible for a great deal of destruction. We don't know if that's after or before this writing. But lots of good reasons why Jonah may not want to go and bring any news from God to other people. And yet he responds. He marches in to Nineveh and declares 40 days 
and Nineveh will be overthrown. And it's not the most impressive sermon, right? He didn't add, we don't get any, like, details he added, you know, like, this is who I'm speaking about, and this is the corruption. It's almost like just the, the, the simplest, like, almost reluctant message of God's word. Forty days, and this place will be overthrown. That's all he says. And the place lights up. He speaks it, 40 days, and then it will be overturned. And it's like he mumbles it, and everyone around him that hears it is like, oh, that's true. And they go off, and they tell other people, 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. And it begins to work its way automatically through the people. It says in this translation we read, from the low to high. Other translations take it from, from the peasants all the way to the king. So you see this idea of an organic word-of-mouth street campaign. The words beginning to spread person to person. 40 days overthrown, 40 days overthrown, 40 days overthrown, until it makes its way through all the common folk, through all the families, through all the business owners, through all the farmers, and it begins to go up into the courts and into the temples and into the religious sectors until it reaches the king himself, and the king hears this, 40 days and then it will be overthrown. And the king's like, oh, this is true, and what have we done? And we've done wickedness, and we have to seek justice. And he calls a fast, and he says everyone must repent and relent. And they all have to wear uncomfortable inside-out uh, animal furs to be part of repenting. The text goes so far as to say, if you keep reading in Jonah 3, that the king was so cut to the heart that he put the animal skins on animals so they could join in the repentance. And it's supposed to be a little funny. Like, like the, this small, little word causing such a massive upheaval. And the people respond in trust, in trust and faith to God. I don't know that all these ancient Assyrians suddenly became monotheistic God-fearers. We don't get any evidence that they changed their religious orientation necessarily. But they respond to what they can respond to. They respond to the word from God as they can respond in their own time and place. They enter into faithfulness with the spirits above them and ultimately with the living God. And that faithfulness, that trust, is expressed in acts of justice and mercy and humility. Words move us. This simple word from Jonah spreads automatically like a social contagion, person to person, word of mouth, until it accomplishes what it has been sent out to do. This is how words work. They move us. I'll try to illustrate this, all right? Uh, words move us. As an illustration, let me just show you. Uh, can everyone raise their hands quick? Exactly. It's, it's so in front of us that we don't always notice it. I don't know what we think moves us, but it's largely words. If I were to say to you that there was someone that you love waiting outside, you, 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 you might believe me, you might not believe me, but if you believed me, you might go outside to see who it was. If I were to use a word uh, like sale, there's a sale on, marketers know, a word like sale, limited time, that moves us. They know this. Words move us. If your child says, can you get me X, Y, Z, then you go and get it for them, or you don't. And you say, no, you go get it, because words move them also. 
Encouragements move us. Someone saying, you're doing a great job. You might revisit that little encouraging message that someone gave you time and time again. Someone who says to you, you were really made for this. You might meditate on that statement. You were made for this. And that idea in your mind, that word, will continue to grow inside of you. And the more you meditate on it, the more true it becomes. Words live in us. It's not just external words that move us, someone saying something to us or a sign or a symbol speaking to us, but internal words as well. Some of you have internal dialogues about what a good person would do, how a just person would act. What does it mean to be an honest person? Maybe these were imprinted on you by family, by friends, by church, by religion, by philosophy, by worldviews, something at some point imprinted on you, and everything you see every day is run through the grid, the word that was given to you previously. And the decisions that we make are in some way in dialogue with the words that have come to us over our life. It makes me wonder about what kind of words could enter a city like ours, a congregation like ours, a church like the church of this city? What kind of words could break into our workplaces? What kind of words could break into our neighborhoods? In the north end of Hamilton, when there was a small housing project that was going to come up, a tiny home project to see if we could find a place for all these people sleeping on the streets to live, the word that dominated was a word of fear, massive anxiety, a huge amount of uh, nimbyism, not in my backyard. And you could argue that that was fair or unfair, but you can't argue that it was fear that drove the entire conversation. And then you begin to wonder, well, what would be another word that could combat a word of fear? Maybe a plan needs to be adjusted, but maybe it's not just the plan that needs to be adjusted. Maybe the words we use need to be adjusted. Maybe if other words, compassion, solidarity, connection, other stories of other places where things have gone differently, maybe some other word could have changed how we interacted with those sorts of plans. This is uh, captured best, perhaps, in moments where there are experiences of what Christians often call revival. Revival is just, you know, to revive. Re means again in Latin. Uh, vival, vive, is Latin for life, vivification. So a new life or a re-lifing. What does it mean for people to experience re-lifing? Uh, in 1857, there was a re-lifing, a revival in the city of Hamilton. This is called the Hamilton Revival of 1857. There's a book about it by Sandra King in the little bookshelf back there if you want to look more into it. And this was a time where in this city's history, word started to spread automatically. A word became contagious, and the word was to turn back to God. Now, this was a time where God language was much more saturated in our culture. Religion was still in our cultural lexicon. But this word started to spread. You know, people maybe went to church, maybe didn't go to church, but this was about more than church. This was about our hearts turning back to God. And what began at a prayer meeting 
began to spread out, a word that people were turning to God, turning to what they knew to be true, turning to the love of God, which is going to manifest itself in a love of life, which is going to manifest itself in mercy and justice and humility and compassion. And if you read some of the accounts from the newspapers at the time of this revival, you'll hear about how it spread from one prayer meeting to multiple prayer meetings and how every prayer meeting started growing automatically. It wasn't led by clergy, which is very interesting, especially at the time when clergy would have been seen as like church leaders. You know, none of you think of me as a leader, so I don't think I can survive. <laughs> but today, like clergy is a different thing today, but back then, the clergy ran the church, but this movement was not run by clergy. It was called the layman's revival. Every person, every human, to their person. One person at a time. And they describe groups of people in healthcare witnessing this word to people in healthcare. And people in finance giving this word to people in finance. And it talks about it spreading group to group, family people speaking to family people, business people speaking to business people, and the entire city coming to these prayer meetings to seek God, to confess that they had not done everything right, and to repent, to turn back to God, which is to turn back to justice and mercy and humility and compassion. A social contagion for good. Do you even believe that could happen? Do we believe it's possible that a word could go out that is so true, so perfectly timed, that it spreads automatically, person to person, like a virus? Which should also give us some hope that such a thing is possible, right? Because we've seen how contagious things can be. And sure, we could speak of the contagion of germ, but during that same pandemic, we all noticed social contagions, how we treat one another, what we do, whether we wear a mask or gather in public. We start to see how so many of these different elements are based in just what we say to one another. The word is powerful. Now, for the record, I have no idea what the word would be that would cause our city to turn to God in the way that they could and reestablish mercy and justice. I don't know the word, way above my pay grade. But I know there were these stories of city leaders, of the mayor of Hamilton, on his knees, weeping and confessing his sin. And I, I suspect that if the business leaders of this city and the healthcare workers, and the politicians, and the people living on the streets, and the people caring for their neighbors were to start gathering together on their knees saying, I too have done something wrong. I suspect that a lot of our social issues would begin to resolve themselves automatically. It's like a rock being dropped into a pool. A single word drops, bloop, and the ripples come out. Spiritual revival is not about improvement. It is not about trying to solve things or fix things. It is a far more radical act than that. Spiritual revival is each one turning to the living God as they are able 
and each one speaking the word that they are given to speak. So relax for a moment and remember, you don't need to know what the big word is, the word from God. You don't need to know that. But you will be given a word. You'll be given a word to speak. And many of you, as I'm saying this, can think about a time where you've had impressed upon you something that you ought to say to someone else. A word of encouragement. A word of challenge. Maybe a word that you don't even understand why you have to speak it, but just the impression that you ought to say something to someone. And often, we don't. We don't. And that's fair enough, because we're afraid. We're nervous. We don't want to be embarrassed. We don't want to offend someone. We don't want to cause someone to stumble for any reason. And all of those are legitimate. But when we are given a word to speak, we do have to speak it. For some of us, that will mean learning to speak. Learning to not be afraid of how a word will be received, because your job is to be faithful to the word itself. And if you're someone who's naturally afraid to speak a word, the next time a word impresses upon you, meditate on it, carry it with you, and wait for the moment, the right time and place, where that word needs to be spoken. For others of us, speaking the word God gives us to speak will actually require shutting up for a while. This is my camp. Hello. Because if you're talking all the time, talk, 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 opinion, 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 hot take, hot take, hot take, when you're finally given the word from God, you speak it like faithfully, I'm speaking, and people are like, there he goes again. (laughs) Not that I know this from experience. And so for some of us, speaking the word that God gives us requires a ceasing to speak other words and a stilling and calming of ourselves. But whether it's difficult for us to speak or we need to speak less, the call is the same. To wait on God to give you the time and place, that perfect moment of synchronicity when you know the word wants to come out. And you will know the moment. You will feel it in your gut. You will sense that it is right. And that is when you are to speak. And it will be something that you could speak. And that's why you must speak it. And God alone will take all of the words that are given to each of us and through those words work out his word. Is this making sense at all? All right, amen. Praise God. Well, let's close with some good news. The good news is not that you will be given a word to speak. That's really great and exciting. But that's not the good news, because that's still you having to do something. And the good news can't be like good advice. It can't be a good to-do. Good news is good news. So here's the good news. Think back to our gospel text. Jesus is walking alongside some fishermen. They've been out likely all night fishing. They're tired and exhausted. Some of them are mending the nets. And he speaks to them a word. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Follow me, and you will fish for people. 
And I don't know exactly why that was so compelling. Like, if Jesus gave me the word, you will fish for people, I'd be like, I don't know how to fish for anything. Like, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't work for me. And this is exactly the point. The word comes to each one as you can hear it for you. But for these disciples, tired after a full night, mending their nets, maybe wondering at that exact moment, is this all there is to life? We go out fishing, we mend nets, we go out fishing, we sell the fish, get ripped off by the elites, we come back out, we fish, we mend the nets. Is this all there is? In a single moment, Jesus says, that is not all there is. Follow me and we'll fish for people. And immediately they drop their nets and they follow Some of you have received a word like that before. An interruption to your daily life where something beyond you spoke to you, come with me and see what it's really about. For some of you, that's why you're still here in this room today, seeking God, worshiping God. And for some of you, that word may not have ever come. It may have always been business as usual, but that word will come to you. It may be today. It may be tomorrow. It may be in the next week, the next month, or the next year. But keep attention. Be interruptible. Wait. Wait until you hear that particular word from Christ. And when you hear it, do not hesitate to respond. The good news will come to you, and then you will go. Amen.